welcome to The Corporate Athlete. I'm Rachel Findler. Now you may have noticed I didn't put up any podcasts throughout the winter and this is because I'm a skier and I've spent the winter being buried deep in the mountains. I have had one of the best winters in my life and considering I had an ankle injury which required surgery last year and I got diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, I didn't really think I was going to be skiing this winter. It pays to be stubborn, doesn't it? <laughs> I was so determined to get back on my skis and as a result, I have had the best winter. You can probably hear it in my voice. I am smiling ear to ear. I have met some amazing people. I've skied lines that I never thought I was going to ski. Um, I've visited places I didn't think I was going to go to and I'm just on such a high from this winter. And I've I will uh, post some more of my adventures on my Instagram, uh, so at the underscore corporate underscore athlete, or you can find me on LinkedIn, I'll be putting up some more posts. I just haven't had time to uh, put the posts up this winter, I've just been having too much fun living in the moment. So on the theme of having some of the best adventures, I wanted to launch uh, the Corporate Athlete 2019, interviewing someone who definitely knows all about adventuring and that is Tom Bodkin. Now he is the founder of Secret Compass, which is an incredible adventure travel company. Um, not only do they take groups um, like me and you out to some of the most amazing parts of the world, they also do a lot of the expeditions for some of the TV crews that you see. They've worked with the BBC, National Geographic, and Channel 4. Um, such an incredible group of experienced people. Now Tom was previously in the British services, he was an officer in the army and at only age 23 he had his first position um, taking care or being in charge of a team of 30 men and women. Now that is incredibly daunting, I don't know if at 23 I would have the confidence to go and do that. Now in my opinion the men and women in the services are some of the best athletes in the world. They are so incredibly fit and they just have an admirable mentality and I was so excited to interview Tom who has gone from the British services to now running a very successful travel business and I wanted to see the parallels that he brought from his experience in the army into running Secret Compass. Now if you want to find out more information on Secret Compass which I know you will definitely want to go on one of their trips after listening to this you can go to um, secretcompass.com and you can also find them across most social media channels. They've got an incredible YouTube channel. Uh, you can check out some of their videos and really see the trips that they offer. Um, there's an amazing video on their adventure in Panama. I definitely recommend that one. Uh, you can also find them on Instagram. Uh, Twitter is at secret underscore compass. Uh, and of course, they're on Facebook as well. I'm going to hand this over to Tom. Um, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. You will learn so much about leadership, that there is always a solution, as Tom says, it may not be a full solution, but there might be a 60% solution. I love that. There is always a solution to problems. And my favorite part that we talk about is risk tolerance. Tom tells us that risk tolerance is actually subjective um, to each individual and each person. So I hope you enjoy. Tom, thank you so much for being here today. It's okay. No so problem. excited to talk with you. I was was scouring all the adventures you've been on and uh, just sheer envy was coming through me as I was looking at your list of countries you've been to. So can you tell us where you've been traveling to recently? Uh, yeah, sure. So recently, um, so I was, in, I was in Alaska a few weeks ago, uh, just for, for a week doing a, 
a recce for a TV show out in the far west. And uh, I've not been to Alaska before, but it was super interesting. It was the, to a small um, indigenous community right on the, well, as close as you can get to Russia, basically. And you've got to fly in by plane to the, to the small village, and they, they still live um, partly by subsistence hunting. Um, and they, they've, you know, that community's been there for thousands of years. And uh, so, it's, yeah, it was really, really interesting to go there. Um, and then in, in September, I, I went to North Korea for a, to do a mountain bike trip in North Korea for um, a couple of weeks, which was which was really interesting. Yeah, it's very different. Instead of going mountain biking in the Alps like a regular person, you decided yeah. to go to North Korea. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it, it was it was um, it was kind of an exploratory trip, and I've got, I've done a couple of bike trips, and uh, a friend of mine, a photographer called Dan Milner. Um, we were sort of discussing where it would be quite interesting to try and take bikes and and uh, and we've run trips to North Korea before so um, we suggested to, to give it a go and see what we could find there. Well so you had one recon expedition to Alaska mm. and then when you went to North America, uh, North Korea that was with a, a guided group was it? So it was myself, uh, yeah I was, gu I was guiding it, it was two professional mountain bikers and a photographer and uh, we were there to kind of like you know, look for trails in North Korea, as it were, um, and we succeeded. There were there were some you know there was some good riding there. Some some it's quite limited. There's some quite average riding, and obviously the um, you know we didn't really have we that much knowledge of kind of what what would work beforehand. So we were going in quite blind. Um, but it was really interesting. Really great people, amazing food. Very interesting to see um, the way that the uh, that. Um, socialism works there, and um, and to sort of you know get past the uh, the sort of what you you get fed, fed from the Western media around North Korea. Yeah, you get to see it with your own eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Do people in North Korea is there a big mountain biking scene so, there? Well, um, there's a big bike scene. Uh, so in Pyongyang, people are going around on electric bikes, and you know that's a massively popular form form of transport. Um, our guide sort of turned up on the on the second day with uh, his um, his his bike, which was a mountain bike. It was an old giant with sort of some form of front suspension and sort of dodgy sort of city tires on. Um, so you know, mountain bikes have been you know are there as it were, but as a scene, I don't think people go out to go mountain biking. So what did they make of you guys when you showed up with your? all your mountain bike gear and I'm assuming covered in mud as well after being off trail adventuring. Yeah, well yeah, so I mean the first area we went to is a place called Mount Myohang and um, it's uh, it's really popular with Korean tourists, North Korean tourists, uh, because it's it's got holds a sort of special place within the mythology of North Korea. And um, and so we're going up these uh, through these waterfalls and up these rock sort of ledges and um, the the not me, the pro guys were sort of, you know, riding down these really steep sort of, you know, rock rock sort of walls as it were. And um, all the locals were loving it. Smartphones were out, taking videos, <laughs> selfies. So uh, so yeah, they, they thought it was it was great. I remember when I was living in Whistler they had the um, Red Bull mountain bike competition, part of Crankworks out there. Mm. And the guys were doing their backflips on their mountain bikes and there was a couple standing in front of me who had obviously never seen this style <laughs> of biking and they were losing their mind, they were freaking out yeah, over yeah. these tricks. Like it's just, 
incredible. I wonder if they're going to go try and take their electric bikes down these. Uh, yeah, rock totally. Walls now. I respect so. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, <laughs> they were pretty. Yeah, they were. They were just like who are these crazy Europeans? But um, yeah, they were pretty, pretty awesome. Amazed by it. and the guides loved it. The, the our sort of guides who who took us around. They. Um, they were constantly taking videos and you know getting really excited about it, showing people when we met them what you know what the guys were doing. So yeah, it definitely caused um, a bit of a buzz, and it's a really nice way actually traveling by bike or mountain bike to sort of break down barriers with people because um, you know immediately there's something there to sort of talk about. People are you know intrigued as to what it is. They they want to come and have a look at the bike. They want to you know come and understand what you're doing there. Um, so whether it be in North Korea or Ethiopia or or northern Afghanistan where we've done bike trips it's it immediately you know you go into a you ride a bike into a village and uh, immediately it's sort of it's it's that icebreaker gone and people are you know interacting so so it's uh yeah it's a good way of traveling so you're learning from their culture but they're also learning from you as these crazy guys who roll in yeah on I don't know if they, yeah I'm not sure what they're learning from us but yeah they're certainly <laughs> sort of uh yeah intrigued anyway yeah. Well, I'm extremely inspired by how you've created this amazing business, Secret Compass, and this amazing life for yourself. Um, obviously, I, it's been a journey for you, but can you start from the beginning? Because you were in, um, in the services of the British Army uh, to start off with. Yeah, that's right. I was in the Army for seven years um, in the Parachute Regiment. And uh, uh, so throughout most of my 20s, I, I was in the Army. And then I left and, and set up Secret Compass straight afterwards. That's quite a jump to go from the services to running a business. Was there any gap there or you just threw yourself straight into it? <laughs> there, no, there was no gap. I mean, we, I, left, I left work on the Friday. I was still actually in the army and, and flew out on our first trip on the Monday. So there was, it was, there was no gap at all. We, I sort of set it up while I was still in. Um, but it was a huge learning curve. I mean, actually, the running the expedition piece was, was something that I was very familiar with. Um, but the running a business piece was, you know, we had no idea. And when you're in the army, you, you know, if you go and do anything, you go to the jungle, there's a jungle handbook, you know, t telling you what to do. But there's no uh, real sort of business handbook. Well, there is, you know, in terms of general principles, etc. But in terms of the, within that actual business and within that industry, you know, there's no particular often way of doing things. You've got to figure it all out by yourself. And so, um, so yeah, there, there was a really, really steep learning curve initially, uh, not just in terms of you know, how to run a business, um, but also how to do business, uh, because we'd, we'd never really done business before. We never really worked with people in, in that way. And so that, that was definitely a sort of learning curve. Because mm. you were really good at the expedition aspect, as you said, you, you knew that from the army, you mm. know that you're capable of going to the jungle, running a three week expedition, mm. but maybe the learning curve was getting people to come on the expedition. Like, how do you find those people? What, what was your strategy to go out and find these clients that were as crazy as you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good question. Yeah, marketing is always the kind of like most difficult piece of running a business, right? You can you can have a great product, but you need people to buy it. So, um, so that was yeah, certainly a big challenge initially. And we we I think we just got lucky initially because we we obviously put up a website, put it out on social media. We got some good PR initially, and um, and uh, through a little bit of word of mouth, we managed to kind of put together the six or seven people we took on the first trip. Um, so I think there was in terms of strategy. 
Uh, it was probably quite limited. We uh, <laughs> hopefully we've developed a bit more of that, but it was. Um, I think it was partly luck and partly uh, uh, sort of just trying to work out, you know, what we could do for very little money. Mm. Did you underestimate what was going to have to be put into the business side of things? Um, I think. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if I really thought about it properly at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I actually underestimated it. Or, but um, yeah, I mean, we, we sort of went into it, uh, you know, we, we were very sort of, uh, you were quite young, quite bold, you know, had, had lots of self-confidence after sort of seven years running around with the army. And so we, we thought, um, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to find a way of doing this. Um, so we, we were quite lucky and we had that sort of, sort of self-confidence to say okay well if if you know barriers come our way then we'll find a way of working around them so um uh, i don't know if we actually sort of sat down and uh and sort of thought in in real detail about the task at hand <laughs> i i read a quote that you said that there's always a solution and i thought that is so true but that has to be from your army background that thought process uh, yeah, yeah, and I'd say that there's, there is always a solution. It's not necessarily like 100% though, it might be a 60% solution. Um, uh, yeah, look at Brexit, but the, um, but yeah, so that, yeah, I think you can always find a way of doing, of doing things. Um, and, and it may not be that it's the perfect solution, but it may be that it's the most appropriate solution. Yeah. I think as well with confidence that you have, you know, you were saying you felt quite confident starting up the business. When you've been out of your comfort zone so many times, like you were during your service time, it's, it becomes natural to just throw yourself into things and think, oh, we'll just figure it out when we're there or, or we'll, we'll get through it somehow or we'll find a solution some way. Is that what kind of brought the confidence out in you to just say, all right, let's just go for it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's being in the in the army does well. They, for good reason, try and develop that sort of self confidence in you because they they put you at a very young age into sort into quite challenging situations, and you need to have that confidence to to manage those situations. So um, they that's definitely something that is built, and the you know part of the. Um, some of the tests that they do, you know, the reality is the tests aren't that hard, you know, in the scheme of things, thousands of people have gone through them before you, but they, they build them up to be quite a, you know, quite a sort of uh, a big barrier, something that's very, you know, challenging, um, and then, you know, coach you to succeed, and then uh, because they've been built up as such a big challenge, it, you know, it gives you a lot of confidence. So, um, and then for, for us, you know, we, we were, uh, I was in the army in sort of late, sort of 2006, 2011. It was really busy operationally, so I did um, a couple of tours of Afghanistan and uh, working in an operational environment at, at a really you know young age. I was 25 when I first went out there. Um, having done that and uh, and and you know uh, led a team of people in a in a you know in quite a high in intensity sort of conflict um, you come out of that and you think well if I if I've done that then you know you know I, I, that gives you confidence to then take on other challenges. Mm. I really like the technique that you described that the army used to build up these challenges that seem like quite 
tough challenges. But as you said, thousands of people have gone through it before, but as a result, you have so much confidence in yourself because you've achieved it. Mm. That's actually a, a technique I've never thought of um, in business before to encourage your staff like you know this is going to be really tough but <laughs> if we get there we'll achieve great things and yeah, yeah. kind of um, build the confidence up in, in people in that aspect I really like that is, is that what you do with your team <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah no it's not maybe I should uh, no uh, no it is and it's um, I mean I think it, it what it does is it builds a mentality that um, that people believe that they can achieve things you know and uh, and what that means is when they're in sort of tough situations and you know things are up against them they've you know they think well I you know I passed P company or I did this and therefore I can do this um, so I think it's an effective tool I'm not sure how you how you um, practically do it in in business but I'm sure there's definitely a way mm. well because you were um, a leader at a very young age weren't you was it 24 yeah, so if you if you join the army as an officer, you your first job is you're in charge of thirty guys, you're in charge of a platoon. Um, thirty guys. Yeah, is your first. Yeah, first it's your job. first job. Wow. Yeah, that's a huge exactly. team. Yeah, it's quite a big team, um, comparatively, definitely. And um, and you know, I was I can't remember how old I was, twenty three or twenty four when I when I was first in charge or first you know, a platoon commander. Uh, but some people are much younger, some people are sort of 21 uh, or 20. Wow. And so it's um, it's a huge amount of responsibility at, at quite a young age, um, which is, you know, which is a good thing, I think. Were you nervous going into that role for the first time? Or I suppose the training? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'd come out of 18 months of training, so I guess I'd, I was well prepared for the role. Um, but yeah, of course, everyone's nervous before they go into into a, into you know a new job or a new position. Um, I think you're always nervous about you know how you'll do, how you'll be perceived by the people that you're working with. Um, so yeah, I think so. Yeah. When you first sort of go in, see so you've got these thirty men and women in front of you. Yeah. Did you, in your mind, think, all right, I'm going to go in as the hard ass, or <laughs> I'm going to go in as the like strict but fair? Did you have a plan before? Um, uh, no, not really. I mean, I was, so I took over my platoon about, I don't know, a month after they got back from their first tour of Afghanistan. So, you know, all the guys I was in charge of had just come back from a really, um, a, a really challenging uh, tour of Afghanistan, the first British tour out there. So there were, uh, you know, lots going on. And um, uh, so, you know, I... Uh, I had to take quite a sort of you know humble approach to to that I think, um, mm -hmm. and and you sort of feel your own way. You, you're very well supported in that you've got a uh, a platoon sergeant who's like the um, you know second in command, uh, who's who's very experienced. He'll be the most senior person there, probably 12 years of experience, and his job really is to kind of you know help kind of bring you on, even though you're normally in charge. You know his job is to help sort of. Uh, uh, develop you as you know as much as anything and, and guide you so you've got really good support and then you've got three sort of team leaders who will all have about six years experience um, and uh, and again they they manage the sort of the, the team so you know within the within the organization within the structure there's there's really good support to kind of guide you and lead you uh, along as, as you go if that makes sense mm, as every leader needs they need support yeah sure. from other people yeah when, when you look at your leadership style from when you first started as an officer at 24 
to now your leader with Secret Compass running the business. Is, is there parallels or do you see quite a difference because you've evolved over time? Um, I think there's definitely parallels because, you know, leadership is ultimately about, you know, who you are as a person and your personality and, and how you project that onto others. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's, there's certainly parallels. Um, and, uh, and, and what you learn in the army you obviously take forward to, into business but um, uh, obviously that evolves over over time as you mature as a person. Mm. Who is your leader of any any industry, any era, who is the leader that you look to or aspire to be? <laughs> good question. Um, yeah, I good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've kind of the I don't necessarily sort of have a, uh, an individual, as it were. I think you learn off lots of different people, sort of different things, don't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. The. Uh, yeah. So it's a good question. I'll have to uh, think about that one. Yeah, I got asked that recently, and I was like, yeah. "Oh, that's such a good question." But like you said, it is hard to narrow down because mm. mind immediately goes to business leaders, and then you sort of think, "Oh no," but there's other leaders, political or mm. expeditional, that scientific that inspire yeah. as well. But um, but I can't help but um, obviously love Shackleton. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. everything, and um, and someone was like, why did you say Shackleton? And I thought, well, because they were in such dire state. But every he never lost face, and every single day he gave the men something to do. They all had tasks to do, mm. and even when he finally did that final leg on his boat and left the men in the cave. He mm. told them, you have to clean the cave every day. You have to sew your clothes up every day and clean your clothes every mm. day. And he left them with tasks to do every single day. So they, they were keep always busy. Yeah. yeah, keep them busy and, yeah. and motivated and determined. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, a, lot, a bit of a cliche is, is Mandela. I think like, you know, mm. the way that Mandela managed to, uh, um, to lead South Africa to, through such a difficult part of their history. You know, with such dignity is quite quite impressive, and and um, I managed to yeah do it in broadly speaking, you know, in a, in a well in a peaceful way during the nineties anyway. So I think you know his he, he's definitely someone you can learn from in terms of you know the, the ability to sort of see the bigger picture and, and bring people together around it. Mm. I think it's hard sometimes to keep your head down and focus on what you're you know is what's right but everyone around you is saying otherwise or telling you it's not wrong have you ever been in any of those situations where you've maybe been out in the jungle and you've thought this is where we need to go or this is it and there's been doubt within the group and you've had to take that role to make that decision um uh yeah uh no definitely the um i think you there's uh yeah there I think there's a balance between between listening to people and sort of taking on board their point of view and um, and and knowing when you when you need to sort of push on regardless if that makes sense and and understanding you know when when the right thing to do is to listen to people take on that advice and and act with that advice and when actually the right thing to do is to is to push forward with you know your sort of course of action that is maybe contradictory to some advice um, that that uh, that sort of balance uh, depends on experience, I think, and uh, and the more experience you have, the more confidence you have in your um, ability to sort of or your uh, 
your understanding of the situation and um, and your um, uh, your I guess it gives you more confidence to, to go against you know advice and doubters if that makes sense. Mm. We've had so much experience. <laughs> I don't think many people would argue with you <laughs> about your decisions. I don't know about. Well, no, no, not at all. Um, and and quite often, you know, I think recognizing when you are wrong is is a key thing as well because, you know, lots of people aren't always right. Yeah, I have been called out in the backcountry skiing, ski touring once, and um, someone made a wrong decision. And of course, everyone agrees. You know, yes, mm. we should go that way. And we ended up in a horrible valley we went too far down and we were walking in creeks and it was just a nightmare and um, someone started freaking out and getting very aggressive and annoyed at the situation but the person who made the decision said look I messed up I've made the wrong decision I'm doing everything I can to fix it right now we all need to stick together it's going to get dark soon so let's just stay calm and push on and no one said a word after that yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the guy who got upset just needed to hear that yes that was yeah. the wrong decision yeah yeah and, um, just need, yeah acknowledgement yeah, that totally. we've gone wrong yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no absolutely um, no I think you know that's a really good example that what that guy did was respond you know acknowledge your mistake and and say right let's pull together and work forward to to you know find a find a way out of this yeah, there's always a way out. Uh, well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully, yeah. Um, so with your expeditions with Secret Compass, I mean, they're just uh, endless journeys that are, that are options. While you were in the army going around, was that in your mind? Like when Afghanistan, you went mountain biking in Afghanistan, mm. were you thinking this would be an awesome place for mountain biking? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, good question. So... In a way, yeah. I mean, we I went to one to Zabul province in two thousand and eight, which is an amazing sort of mountainous area. And you do think, oh, it'd be great to come back here and you know just go go trekking and go and you know climb that mountain, see what's over there. So absolutely, from that from like this would be a great place to do this. But certainly at the time, I wasn't thinking um, oh, I'm gonna set up a travel company and bring a trip back here. <laughs> that didn't <laughs> yeah. that didn't sort of like cross my mind once. Um, so. Uh, the the idea actually to go back to Afghanistan was when we were looking at our you know when we decided why don't we well, set an expedition company we were looking at different trips and uh, and different places to do things we came across the Wakhan corridor in the in the northeast of Afghanistan which and um, uh, and it just looked like an awesome place and a, an amazing place to go to and it was quite nice that it had that connection you know um, from serving there to then go back as a tourist and. I think it was it was a good sort of first trip to run, partly because of that sort of connection and our sort of understanding of Afghanistan and our experiences there as soldiers. Going then going back as tourists was was a um, a really nice way to kind of start the company. Mm. Was it mixed emotions going back? Uh, uh, yeah, in a, in a way, um, I it, it was quite you know I, I'm pretty. I guess uh, it, it, it wasn't necessarily mixed emotions, but certainly when I, when we first crossed over into Afghanistan, um, suddenly because that the only time I've been in that environment before was you know with thirty other guys you know um, with weapons out there you know under threat really uh, suddenly because I was back in that environment the compounds were the same you know the alleyways were the same um, it is I was suddenly 
I felt a little bit naked because I was like, you know, where are my mates? And, uh, yeah. But um, even though I knew that that area was completely safe, there wasn't really any issues um, because of you, you know, your previous experience in that environment. It did uh, definitely make you really nervous. And I, I've been back three times since, and um, and it gets less and less every time you go back. But you certainly do sort of yeah feel slightly uncomfortable um, because your previous experience in that environment has been so different. Mm. And then did people, did you notice the Afghani people were different as well? Uh, not really, they're, they're kind of the same, they're just people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in the Wakan you've got the Waki and the Kyrgyz who are culturally different. The Waki is mainly and the Kyrgyz are sort of Kyrgyz nomads, so they're different really from, um, uh, from say, the Tajik Afghanis further west or Pushtuns further south. But, um, but they're just people, right? Like they are everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I was on a flight back from um, Thailand to London and we, I opened the window and I love looking out the window on flights, I always get a window seat. And we were over these incredible mountains and I, I've never seen anything like it because one side of the mountain was snow and the other side was sand. And it was just like that, the whole, every mountain was like that, every peak, the whole range was like that. And I was like, where are we? And I looked on the, on the flight map and we yeah. were right above Afghanistan. Oh, right. And I thought, I have to come ski here and yeah. sand ski sand, sand, sand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here as well. That's um, cool. It, the terrain just looked Yeah, I wonder where, exactly where that was. Yeah, I mean, so you can ski in Bamiyan, which is right in the centre, um, or you can ski in the Wakan, which is right up in the northeast, and in Okay, and that's, you can in Panjshir, which is like a, a valley north of Kabul. So there is, you know, some quite extensive skiing in Afghanistan. We'll have to go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so with your trips with Secret Compass, you have these people who will come to you who want an adventure, and I would say a, a, quite the adventure as well, um, whether it's to go through the desert or jungles or... Um, yeah. mountain snow experience that you're going to Georgia so there was a trip to Georgia and the mountains yeah. um, these people that come how do you convey the risk to them that they're about to embark and also how do you do that without putting them off because with the risk assessment you have to let everyone know what the risks are Yeah, and then but without totally putting them off but then also having them aware of these risks so that they can be prepared and plan if anything goes wrong. How do you find that balance? Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess the first thing is is uh, I think part of the attraction is that there is is some risk um, because you know I think that's what people are in some ways looking for nowadays. They don't. That's why there's a huge increase in extreme sports, right? Because mm-hmm. people don't want to be you know sat and closeted and um, uh, you know, they want some excitement and some adventure. In order to do that, there needs to be some risk. So I think I think risk is a really healthy thing um, for people. And uh, but the it's really important for us to ensure that everyone understands what they're doing and understands the the level of risk that they're taking, and is um, essentially says, okay, I I understand what's what's you know, what, what the risks are, I understand the potential consequences of those risks, so what could happen and the impact that may have and I'm, you know, still willing to go ahead and do this and, and that's a really important thing for for us to, to sort of get off people and um, we do that in, di- 
you know, the, the way that we try and do that is to explain, you know, what are the potential things that, you know, that could, you know, cause, cause a problem, cause harm, um, what's the level of risk, so how likely is it to happen, and then, you know, if it does happen, how, how severe are those consequences. Uh, and, um, and then once we've done that and explained, you know, the, the potential issues here, um, and a good one to, from expeditions is uh, the extended medevac time. So, you know, quite often if you're on an expedition, if you hurt yourself, depending on where you are and what, um, uh, what evacuation sort of assets there are in, in the area, um, that you, it could be one, two, three days before we can actually physically get you to a hospital. And because of that, the impact of any injuries much higher than if you could call 999 and have an ambulance in 10 minutes. So people need to really understand that and say and accept that, okay, if I break my leg here, this might be a 30-hour evacuation to a hospital. And, um, and that's, that's really important. But, but risk is also, although it can be very sort of objective and you can get, you know, coloured charts and there's this, this and this, it's actually really subjective in terms of people's perception of risk, mm. firstly. So what they understand as, as a risk or, you know, as could potentially cause them harm or couldn't cause them harm and, and how likely it is to happen. Um, and also people's level of risk tolerance is completely different. So, um, so you know, I, I, and to give you an example of that in the skiing world, um, you know, people's perception of risk often depends on their experience. So someone... And that may go either way. Someone might go into the backcountry, be completely inexperienced, and think, "Oh, this lake looks fine because uh, you know it looks alright," and and drop into it, and it, it could actually be sort of hugely risky. Or it could be the other way. They may be like super nervous about avalanches because all they've heard about is avalanches, and they don't want to go and ski anything when actually it's really safe. So that's the perception piece, and then the risk tolerance piece is what is actually they do understand what level of risk it is but they're happy to take it anyway. And, um, and people's risk tolerance is very, very different. And organisations' risk tolerance is very different to people's risk tolerance as well. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's quite a complicated thing, but it, ultimately it's a very personal thing. I can think of a lot of entrepreneurs that have been very successful who have taken a lot of risks. Yeah. Um, and almost, you know, at the time, people think you're risking everything. Why would you mm. bother? But they've reaped the rewards from it. Like Virgin, sure. for example, is prime prime example of that. Do you find that you, know, you obviously have you have a, an awareness of risk, but you probably have quite a high tolerance to risk? Does that translate in your business decisions as well? Um, I d yeah, I don't know if I have a high tolerance of risk. I think what I what we potentially have is an ability to really think about risk and get into the detail of it and then make an informed decision. But certainly when we first started up, um, you know, I, when I first started the business, I was, I was 29, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, didn't have a mortgage. If it all went wrong, it didn't really matter. So the impact of like it, 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 it going wrong was, was pretty low. Um, whereas now, you know, a little bit older, kids, you know, wife, uh, mortgage, all the boring stuff. Now, if I tried to set up a business now, um, the impact would be much bigger. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, sure, we took a lot of risk. In, well, we, took, we didn't take that much risk. We took, we took a bit of risk in the early days, but we were, did that under the sort of clear understanding that actually if, if it all went wrong, there wasn't much of an impact on us, really. Mm -hmm. We're just going to get a job. Um, yeah, because yeah. 
you know, I started my business and Brexit's happening. Yeah. And so many people say, what are you doing starting up a business with Brexit going on? Mm. You know, it's stupid, be no money, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, what have I got to lose? Because I am at that stage where if it all goes wrong, big deal. Yeah. You know, really, the risk is actually quite minimal. Mm. It's like, well, I'll just go ask someone for a job then. You know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> so, yeah. And then there's always, there's always some work you can do if you, if you need money yeah. quickly. Yeah, and no it's time's ever perfect as well. So, yeah. you know, we, we were sort of, you know, in the tail end of the financial crash and um, similar things, but what are you going to do? Wait five years. It's like, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in five years. So I think, um, you know, you've got to kind of seize the opportunity. Yeah, and if you are, especially with you, you coming off the tail end of the recession, you want to grow as the economy grows again. That's yeah, how I absolutely. see it as well. It's like, yeah, well, I'd yeah. rather start now and grow with everybody over the next five years as we recover or whatever it is. So that's, that's the better yeah, place we'll to be. Yeah. <laughs> Depends what happens uh, uh, yeah, in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, no, totally. Um, no, I agree. And, and I think um, there's always, yeah, there's always going to be risks with everything. But as long as you've kind of thought about those, and balance them against each other, and and have gone in there and, and done it kind of well informed. Um, then I think you're in a you're in a good position. Mm. So when you have groups of people come on the trips, are you able to already see someone that you think might struggle throughout the trip, like in a jungle, for example, or do you tend to see it? more as that like a few days in or a weekend some people might start struggling do you find it quite easy to pick up on that um so it, it depends really because sometimes obviously you, you do you speak to people and you, you get an understanding of their previous experience and um and maybe their levels of fitness and you think okay this person might might, might suffer a little bit but quite often people surprise you and quite often it's not the people who you thought would would struggle you know actually they're the the ones that sort of knuckle down and uh, you know are super determined and often it's, it's the opposite it's people you think would um, would probably you know find it quite easy who are the guy who are the people who uh, maybe don't have the same mental resilience um, as others yeah I do think people surprise you sometimes and also it's yeah. the quiet ones yeah, I find as yeah, well yeah. who often yeah who tends to be really good. Whereas the the boisterous person who tells you how good they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're normally the ones who who suffer first, definitely. Yeah, yeah. we had that actually at my rowing club when I was learning to row. Um, we had a lady come down and she told us how great she was at rowing and her although she'd never rowed before. Um, yeah, she was good. She was yeah. good. Yeah, and she the first weekend she was. She was bored or whatever, but um, anyway, the second weekend she came and she flipped the boat. Oh, wow. <laughs> and four of them went in the river in the Thames, which is, you know, pretty yeah. dangerous. And um, anyway, she never came back. And I mm. thought, oh, that's really interesting. She was the loudest. Everyone yeah. was quite nervous and quiet, but she was the loudest mm. out of the lot. And um, yeah, yeah, that's quite often the case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, my friend Hazel Birnbaum, she... A competitive athlete skier on the freeride world tour and so she did a lot of backcountry skiing yeah and she recently wrote an article for me and it says um when she goes in the backcountry within the group she wants an optimist a pessimist um a navigator a um, dreamer you know, all these yeah different personalities different personalities yeah because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the way the team always works the best do you see that in teams yeah definitely i think um 
you need every, everyone, you need lots of different personality types to counterbalance each other. And, uh, um, and you need them to kind of potentially bring, you know, bring different sort of attitudes to the party and, and, and level everything out. I mean, if everyone was, if everyone were dreamers, then you'd be, uh, be an absolute night, you, you know, you'd be, you'd be dreaming all this stuff, but you'd never actually get around to doing it. But, um, yeah, so no, I think it's, uh, I think that's, that's a really good point. You need to, you need that sort of counterbalance. Um, to people that need a bit of sort of yin and yang. Yeah. And with the mental determination of people that come on your expeditions, yeah. is that the main reason why they're there? Obviously they want a bit of adventure, but is it that mental drive that's making them be there? Uh, no, I think not at all actually. I mean, I don't think a lot of people actually come on our trips for, for the challenge. Um, they, they come on them because they want to go somewhere, they want to go, you know, trekking in, in Iran across the desert. Um, and, and they're not, we, our trips aren't designed to be like super tough, you know, the, the whole point is that they're accessible to kind of ordinary active people. Um, sure, they're, they're physically challenging because you're, you know, hiking for 10 days and camping. So, you know, you're going to be tired, you're going to be a bit sore, you're going to be a bit hungry maybe times you might be cold or wet but you know that they're, they're not sort of like um they're not designed for endurance athletes at all they're just ordinary people and um and i think people people want like certainly i find personally um that and and certainly people who've come on our trips really like the fact that you know because they're living really busy complex lives constantly glued to their phone constantly sort of yeah dealing with multitasking dealing with lots of different things in their lives um actually just stripping it all back and just concentrating you know on where they're putting their f feet in front of them all they're thinking about is oh, i want to get to the camp i want to get my rucksack off you know i want to like i don't know take my boots off my shoulders are hurting um and i just want to get some food and just thinking about the basically the the core things in life you know warmth shelter um food uh is 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 hugely sort of um, uh, is a great way to kind of recuperate, a great way to have a holiday, you go back feeling refreshed because your you know your your mind has just been taken back to just thinking about kind of like the key simple things in life, and you you find that suddenly for you know ten days, two weeks, you haven't thought about that thing at work, or you haven't thought about that thing in your personal life, or you know you've just been concentrating on the here and now, um, and so I think people probably just do it to that to escape in a beautiful place you know with like-minded people and you know come learn about other cultures in at the same time mm. I can definitely relate to that because after living in Canada for so long just get so used to having no phone service it's just normal <laughs> isn't it <laughs> and you can't be on your phone or you can't yeah. rely on it or yeah and, and also it interferes with your avalanche gear as well so you mm. can't have it on yeah. anyway yeah sure um and then moving to London I was just like oh my gosh everyone is on their phone all the time and so connected and so glued and mm. I purposely don't have work emails on my phone things like that just so that I can't be tempted when I am out and about yeah. it's like no I have to be at my desk to during do those working hours to do, to do it. I should do that um, yeah no absolutely and I mean I, an example I took some guys through sort of southern Madagascar a few years ago and there was a husband and wife on the on the trip and um, for the last two or three days we were in uh, sort of two-man rafts mm -hmm. and, and they were together sort of all down the river in the two-man raft and they um, they said it, like it's the most time they've like spent together so just talking for years you know it was just there wow. on, the, on the river so it's um it's a really good way of just you know 
get forgetting about everything else and just connecting with people. Yeah. Well, these all sound like my dream trip. Like every single thing you've described is like is my dream. And, and I saw this year you've got some incredible trips. You've got abseiling in Venezuela, and um, traversing the desert in Sudan. Chile volcanic traverse um, in Panama, and uh, you know, you're going to Georgia to the mountains. I mean, it's just endless. And yeah, well, yeah, no, we do some some fun stuff I don't get to go on many of them but the um, but yeah no we, we, we we've got some some uh, yeah really interesting trips to lots of lots of cool places the Everest in the Alps the trip that we run that's super interesting because you get a, a kind of group of so, so we run a, a um, charity challenge event called Everest in the Alps in, in Verbier every March and you ski to the height of Everest over four days um, so it's quite a tough challenge because you're doing you know, 2,300 metres vertical a day. Um, but it's, it's quite achievable for people if you, if you approach it in the right way. Um, but we often, well, we, all the people who are on it um, are in you know, extremely busy, uh, tough kind of corporate jobs. And they come away and just spend time on the mountain you know, with uh, similar people, uh, getting away from um, their, their normal lives, create great relationships with the people they're in because they're going through a kind of shared experience of hardship and they um, you know, achieve a or get a, lot, a huge amount out of it because you achieve something uh, over, the, over the four days which is, which is you know, not many people have done, it's a really tough challenge and, um, and that whole kind of experience of kind of getting out there and, and going and doing something uh, and doing it kind of um, with, uh, with a great bunch of people and not, con not just concentrating on like putting one foot in front of the other, my feet hurting, you know, this is rubbish, get to the top. And then, uh, and then actually when you get to the top, you're like, actually this is amazing. So that's uh, definitely sort of, I, I, I can see through, through their experiences how, um, how much of an impact it has on them. Yeah, that sounds amazing. When you get to the top, it's so worth it. Yeah, absolutely, it? Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I look forward to following them um, on your guys' social media. Yeah, I do, absolutely. But Tom, thank you so much for talking with us today. I've really learned a lot, especially when you're talking about um, risk assessment. I'm gonna take a lot of that on board uh, moving forward with my business. No problem, no, thanks. It's great to meet you and um, Good luck with everything in the future. Thank you, Tom. Cheers. Well, I'm definitely ready for my next adventure after talking with Tom. You can head over to secretcompass.com to find out their adventures that are coming up. And of course, you can find them on social media channels on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. I want to say a massive thank you to PricewaterhouseCooper for letting me and Tom use one of their offices to meet to do our podcast. I've been part of a program that uh, PwC is running alongside UK Sport and it's called Athlete to Business and it's all about uh, mentoring athletes into the business world. It's such an incredible program and I hope we do a podcast on it down the road. But they've been so supportive in letting us use their office so a big thank you to Chloe Dudding and to David Farmer for setting it up for us. Uh, please rate us five stars if you enjoyed this podcast. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Rachel Findler, or on Instagram at the underscore corporate underscore athlete. 
All right, I'm heading back out to the mountains to Verbier and I'll release the next one in a month's time. Take care.